Hello, everybody. This is Ravi Gupta with a special episode of The Lost Debate. We have on somebody I respect so much and I've known for many, many years, uh, the CEO of the City Fund, Marlon Marshall. And at the City Fund, he's investing in local communities to help improve the public education systems. And beyond that, and where I first met Marshall, is he's been a veteran of democratic politics for a long time. He founded the political strategy firm 270 Strategies, which I've collaborated with a ton. He was in the Obama White House as special Special Assistant to the President and Principal Deputy Director of the Office of Public Engagement. He was Deputy National Field Director for Obama's re-election campaign and the State's Director for Hillary for America. He's one of those political journeymen out there, and I was so excited that he took on this role at City Fund because the kids of America need somebody with the kind of skills that Marlon has, and he's a perfect guest for us because you know, longtime listeners will know we love to talk about the intersection of politics and education, and particularly what the Democrat. Party should be doing on education and, you know, throwing some tomatoes from the sidelines at, at what the Republicans are doing, which I'm sure he can help us with too. For all of that and more, I want to welcome on my friend Marlon Marshall. Welcome to the podcast. Wow. Good to be with you, man. I never thought when we met 10, 15 years ago, we'd be doing a podcast together, but I guess uh, that's the way the world works. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to even guess where we <laughs> met each other. Honestly, I was just thinking about it. Uh, it there's a lot of options. But yeah. Not for well, the podcast, con- exactly. Well, belated <laughs> c- congratulations on the role. I know you've now been easing into it for uh, quite a bit now. Uh, I think it must be going on a year probably soon, a couple months from now, or am I misjudging? Almost a year. It's about yeah. like 10 months, so yeah, we're, we're getting, we're coming up on a year. That's that's amazing. Congratulations. It's an amazing organization. And uh, I want to just take a step back and, and say, like, from your perspective as somebody who came out of democratic politics, what made you decide to go all in on public education at this moment? It's a great question, Robbie. So when I got involved in politics many years ago, uh, my first like full-time campaign was the 2004 John Kerry campaign, uh, but did some, did some stuff locally in Kansas before that, when I went to University of Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. <laughs> I did that because of education. My mom was a public school teacher for 35 years in the St. Louis public school system. She had to use many of her own resources to change, you know, to make, to have opportunities for her kids, to get them the materials they need, to get them the tools they need. And seeing that before I was born, um, she was able to make different choices for me. Um, I went to a private school from first to sixth grade in St. Louis, and then I went to a uh, suburban school district from uh, seventh grade on uh, because my dad was a custodian in that district, and I was able to work. Uh, I was able to go to school there because he worked in that district, and it was one of the higher-rated uh, school districts in the state of Missouri. So when I got involved uh, in campaigns, it was because of that. Uh, I said I wanted to. Um, figure out how to like people who cared about uh, public education in America, um, how to uh, make sure everybody got opportunities that I did, uh, make sure everybody got opportunities that people, make sure everybody, people who look like me got opportunities uh, in the public education system. And that's why I got involved. Uh, that I was not expecting that to translate into a career um, of doing many campaigns, working in the White House and uh, things of that nature, but that was the original reason I got involved. Uh, and then, you know, after the 2016 election, you mentioned I worked for Hillary after that election, I had to figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, I had a couple of realizations um, in the previous years before that of wanting to go back to doing local work. Uh, the first was uh, when Ferguson happened. Um, I'm originally, again, from St. Louis, 
I was working in the Obama White House when that happened. Uh, Mike Brown's mom went to my school district. She was a year behind me. Uh, and I was sent back. I was sent to the funeral on behalf uh, of President Obama. And working there, seeing that tragedy, seeing your home city have tanks in the street during while you're working in this you know, building uh, where you hope to make the biggest change you can make uh, made me think, one, uh, at some point I need to get back to doing local work because all the biggest change I believe in this country happens from the ground and works its way up through the system. Um, and then, you know, after we lost in 2016 on the Hillary campaign, uh, I knew I couldn't do a another presidential campaign again for myself. Uh, my wife and I were ready to uh, start a family. Uh, and I had some friends in the education space and I started reaching out to figure out um, how I could get involved and happened across um, uh, City Fund, which combined both my passion of wanting to do local work uh, with the ability to use philanthropic resources to make change in, in cities across uh, America. So it kind of was a full circle moment for me of why I got involved in politics to begin. And then to be able to come, you know, almost 20 years later and get directly involved in public education. Uh, it felt like it was a no brainer. It felt like, you know, a higher power uh, pointing me in the direction of what my, my life's purpose was. You know, it's amazing when you think back of Ferguson, there was a lot of like the intersection between some of the education work that was happening at the time and the activism that was happening in Ferguson. If you think about, you know, TFA, uh, Teach for America alumni like DeRay McKesson and Brittany Packnett were like super involved in some of that activism and came out of that. And that I think that was the beginning of a different conversation in this thing that we call education reform, which is going to be a big topic of what we talk about today, which, you know, when I started in the work, it it felt different for sure, like in terms of the things people were talking about, the school models they were advocating for, who was doing the work, who wasn't doing the work, the national reception of it evolved. So, you know, in 20, 2010 is when I started, like two years in the Obama administration, it was actually like pretty common. It was still controversial in democratic politics to support a thing like charter schools, for example, or some of the, you know, reforms that Obama pushed for. But around 2010, 2011, waiting for Superman, it's like the apex of this thing we call education reform. And then ever since then, it's basically struggled in the eyes of uh, the democratic establishment. And I would say up until very recently, I would say the conversation has gotten a little more complicated over the past couple of years. But what's your sense of why that's the case? Because I, in many ways, you were viewing it for, as an outsider, right? Like, I'm sure you had your views, but you weren't, like, deep in, in the school world in, in, in that way. What's your assessment as to, like, what happened to that coalition and that community? Great question. I mean, I think it was a couple reasons. Um, like you said, it wasn't – there were parts of the establishment that were pro-reform and parts that were not. I think there's a variety of reasons that is the case. You know, I'm all about neighborhood schools. Uh, I know that's a big – conversation in the Democratic Party. I think that makes sense for neighborhood schools. And I'm all about I'm also about just good high quality neighborhood schools. And when that's not possible, I think folks should have choice, right? That wasn't possible for me. Uh, and so my mom was able to exercise choice literally because my dad was able to work in a different school district. And so that was a choice that she was able to execute, which helped me get to where I'm at today. I wouldn't uh, be here if it wouldn't be for uh, the education I received growing up and then um, at the University of Kansas. So I think that's part of it. I also think there's just been 
misperceptions as with anything with the days of the internet and social media and messaging uh, and things being misconstrued. I think, you know, if you have a bad charter story or two, I think there's times where that becomes what people think the movement is, right? Charter schools only serve certain types of people. They only serve wealthy individuals. It's privatizing the system. It's serving, it's not serving the highest needs kids. And, And yeah, there was some of that. I would say that was not the totality of the movement. Uh, I think you know that well, Ravi, given uh, that you started the school. But I think that narrative caught hold and caught hold in the Democratic Party. One of the things I'm excited about today is if you look at leaders in other spaces that are aiming to change the system. If you look at Shavar Jeffries at KIPP, for example, uh, and there's so many more I could I could name. These leaders look like the communities we aim to serve, right? America's public school system has failed Black and brown students uh, since its inception. I mean, it was built <laughs> to fail black and brown students, right? Like it was built around redlining. It, it was built to do this. And so I think the first step is to show that the folks who are trying to change this are come from the communities that we aim to serve. And so my hope over this next election and over the next few years with the party is to uh, continue to make that case and show the results of, and show that how folks like you who are from the communities that you know, want, want to start a school they're not going back to a community to start a school for any, to, because they want to privatize the system. It's because they realize their community deserves better. Um, and we should be able to support that and understand how to help that and flourish that so that way every kid does get the opportunity they deserve. Yeah, I think what's fascinating is, you know, I've, I took a huge break between, you know, the sort of 2010 to 2016 period. I was in the schools and then post-2016, I got back into politics. I only in the past few months have started going back to some of these education convenings. And it's noticeable how much the community has changed, just the way it looks, what people are talking about. It it feels very, very different. Uh, and, and on the plus side, it's more representative for sure. I think one of the many challenges I've noticed, though, is that it's also become more representative for people outside of the communities uh, within typical democratic constituencies. And what I mean by this is the rise of another, you know, cousin of the education reform community, which used to be part of the coalition is this vouchers, ESA uh, communities that is that in some ways are related to some of these groups like Moms for Liberty and right wing groups. I I don't believe they have to be, Mm -hmm. to be clear. But they do have like, you know, Venn diagram overlaps and they're making up, they're making an argument to communities, rural communities, suburban communities, ex-urban communities, white parents in certain cases to say, hey, we're representative of you too. <laughs> and so it's like, it's a, it's a weird mm-hmm. cousin of the argument. And I don't know, I, I feel the sense, I don't know if you feel this way that the ground underneath the schooling systems in the United States is highly unstable right now. Like, I think there's just so much happening right now that that some major changes happen. You could throw AI in there, of course, but it just feels like there's huge change afoot. I don't know if you feel that way. Um, and you seem like an optimistic guy, so give me a pep talk here. What what is the What does the future hold for us here? What are you seeing on the ground in some of our cities? So I totally agree with everything you're saying, I want, but I want to bifurcate a couple of things. I think there's vouchers, ESAs, what I would call private school choice. And I think voters, families, parents should decide if private school choice is best for them. I, you know, I think people are pushing for that. And I think they're more than welcome to push for that. 
I think the other two, I guess what you would call the cousin to the argument is public school choice, right? And again, I live in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my kids go, I have twin daughters. They're almost six years old. My neighborhood school is 95% Caucasian. The school that they go to, which is a five minute drive, but technically not my neighborhood school, but we were able to choice into that school is 70% Caucasian. So more diverse. They have more teachers that look like them. We have more families that look like them. So they're able to see a totality. And that for us, that diversity was an important characteristic that we wanted to do in selecting a school. So that is what I would call public school choice. And I believe that should just be also part of the conversation because not everybody's going to be able to get a voucher. Not everybody's going to be able to get an ESA, but people should be able to say like, this school in my neighborhood may not be for me. It could be for any reason that matters to them, but the parent knows their kid best and the parents should be able to make that decision with their families on, on what's best. So that's like one piece of the equation that you're saying. And I think it's, there are some interesting um, relationships going on there. And I think we should have a choice conversation. I think choice could be a few different things. The other side is like what books folks should read in classes and, you know, not teaching about black history in schools. And that, that to me is like separate from the conversation about choice. I think it's probably obvious, you know, where I feel like we need to teach American history. And so, but those two things I do think sometimes are getting mixed up and I do think they're yep. separate. Uh, and then you add yeah, to that Yeah, can I just say something on that front though? Please. Oh, can I say something on the, yeah, on the, on the books front? I spoke to Corey DeAngelis this week or we aired the interview this week. And what was fascinating with him is that he explicitly says that one of the reasons why he supports school choice is because of the right for parents to teach their kids the values that they want to teach them. And what I read into that, and I could be reading too much into it, but I think I'm not, <laughs> is that he's he's making an argument for school choice around the, the very thing you're just talking about, books, like what books are. This, and, and I give him a hard time about this because part of, I, I, I'm actually pretty radical on choice. I support charter schools. I'm actually as supportive as a Democrat could get on ESAs. I have certain parameters around when I would support them, but I'm, I'm generally warm to the idea. But what I do not like is this values discussion because it's it's couching the some of this nonsense in a, in a, a choice argument. And it, and it, and it pits, us, it, it kind of makes those of us who want to support choice have to make like a, a bargain with the devil. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't want to support ESAs so a parent can not teach black history. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like, of course, if you want to homeschool your kid for that, but if you're taking public dollars, like and not teaching black history or God forbid, teaching something crazy, like I was looking at the Moms for Liberty uh, gathering that just happened a couple of days ago, or I think it might even been today. At least the clips were circulating today. Like they're they're going beyond saying we're not going to teach black history. They're saying we are going to teach certain things that I think just have no business showing up in our schools. And this is what I get a little concerned about: is like this coalition that I really care a lot about. I think has some fault lines that I think are playing out right now. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'm being paranoid. I 100% agree. I think there's like a baseline for what it means to be a citizen in America. And our education system should be educating to that baseline, right? We should understand history. Right. And I, you know, not use it as a scare tactic to know how we got to where we are, but use it as an understanding to know where do we go from here. There should be a baseline on like math, should be a baseline on science. I I just think there's that. And then at the same time, if your kid 
wants to dance or your kid plays music, you can still go to a different type of school that gets you what that kid is going to need to thrive while also getting the baseline of what it means to uh, live in American society. And I agree that baseline then becomes a values-based argument. And, and I think me and you are aligned on with that, you know, our side of the argument. Uh, but then to like get, I have a friend who's a uh, superintendent right now, and I won't name the state or the city, uh, but they're telling me, you know, that their school board having very minute conversations about books and which book that they can teach and which book they can't. And, and one, I think that's taking away autonomy from the teacher in terms of, um, you know, what is what's going to matter to that class. And every class is different. Every student's different. Um, and we should all want some autonomy in terms of being able to teach to what's going to help your students be grade level and get educated to be a productive member of this society. Uh, but two, it's just, again, it's a values-based argument. When you're saying you're not going to teach this book about black history, that's just saying that we're going to pretend that certain things uh, like slavery didn't happen. And and they did. <laughs> and so right. to, or, um, or minimize that, it, right? Like, because I think it. like a lot yeah. of times, like when I, yeah, because they'll be like, oh, we are teaching it. And I've gotten in some arguments with Chris Stewart over that. But it's like, but in some ways they're minimizing it. And in other cases, there, there, there's a chilling effect where they might not outright say you can't teach something, but the climate is so hostile that a lot of teachers are avoiding teaching that. And I think this is particularly true of LGBTQ issues, right? Where it's like, right. there's a gay character in a book. Is that okay? Nobody knows, right? And a teacher doesn't want to lose their job because, you know, a tenured position in a school district in rural America, for example, is the only job you can have if you're a teacher in that district. And so you don't even want to go anywhere near that line right now. So this yep. is the kind of stuff that yep. interests me. I've taken you on a tangent though. So let me get you back on no. track. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just need to get that off my chest. I appreciate that. But I do think that is, there's that values-based discussion and there's actual options for families, right? And I do think those are two separate things that sometimes get entangled, but I think there's two separate things. I think it provides opportunity, frankly, for folks in the Democratic Party to, to go talk about public school choice and what that means and what they want for their communities. Um, I think there's like, to your point about the movement feeling different now, I think there's plenty of data also now to show who nonprofit schools serve, what the outcomes are, and, and everybody's trying to get better, particularly in the post-pandemic world, but you see some positive trends happening. And those folks live in Democratic districts. Right. Um, and so I think there's more. Uh, my hope is over the next, you know, again, year or two or more that we can start to get and tell that story. And, and I, I personally don't want. Uh, yes, I know this. I, I have a political background, but doing what's right for our kids shouldn't be a political issue. Um, if you are representing a city uh, or representing a community and kids in that community are at grade level, like one of your first priorities should be what am I doing to make sure this education system is changing? Uh, and what am I doing? Because that is the next generation of America. It, it just truly is. So, uh, and then, yeah, lastly, I'll say there's a lot of technology and stuff happening out there. You mentioned AI. One of the things I love about a lot of the, the uh, communities that we support is that, that they're going to be the bedrocks for innovation. You know, we can go, they can go in their schools and test some things that work and see what, and see how to scale those things moving forward. So I am optimistic. There's a lot of politics involved. And I do, I would, I would say, it's not ed reform on shaky ground. It is the public education system period on shaky ground. I agree with that. Uh, and maybe I'm just overly optimistic in where we go from here. Um, but I think the more that 
choice becomes a driving component of how we talk about our work in terms of the parent being able to choose what's best for their kid, uh, the more that we can stabilize the ground that the folks are on, that the system is on. Yeah. And let's talk about the message because I wrote something a little while ago about the Republican Party and how I thought, and this was a world where I was more optimistic, not optimistic is the wrong word, where I, where I was a little bit more bullish on um, Ron DeSantis's chances. And I wrote that I think the Republican primary was going to be very focused on education issues, which is yet to happen. But because of some of the dynamics playing out in the Republican Party, Mont for Liberty, critical race theory, some of the higher education debates that are playing out, that like one particularly effective message the Republicans have is like some kind of Brexit-like mm-hmm. message of take back control, meaning you take back control of your schools, you take back control of your curriculum, parents' rights, transparency laws, et cetera. And I wrote that I thought that that could be a particularly effective message, like whether it's genuine or not is a whole different question, but that it could be effective. And then I kind of compared it to where the Democrats are right now, which to me feels like there are transformative Democratic messengers on education, your you know, mayor to be or current mayor, Mike Johnson, I don't know if he's taken over yet, but there are exceptions like him. But by and large, the message for Democrats feels very similar to where it used to be, which is where it's been for a long time. More money, support labor unions, which, you know, doesn't have to be mutually exclusive with choice, you know, like more, basically more money, more regulation of schools is kind of like what I see from Democrats. And I'm like, yeah, you could support those things, but it doesn't sound any different than it did if Clinton was giving a speech, right? Bill Clinton, not Hillary. So I don't know if you disagree with that, but like what, what's your assessment of the Democratic national message right now in education as it stands and what it should be? I think it should be about public school choice. I think it should be, and look, yes, resources matter. We all know that, right? If you look, you can do some direct correlations to dollar per kid in each in school districts and those with higher that resources per kid. It makes a difference, right? And that's not it. That's not the totality of the uh, equation that we're working with, right? Good teachers that are being supported, that are being financially paid uh, for what they're worth, Principals and teachers being able to do what's best for them in their individual school, and again, parents being able to make the choice that they're being that is best for them um, and their families and their kids. So I told I my my thought is this is a uh, I first of all I don't disagree with you. I think this is um, there's not a transformative message that's currently happening, and again, my hope, particularly sitting in this seat, is that this is an opportunity to get very transformative and to say public education can look different. And we have seen places where it looks different and we have seen the results of that and we see that it can work. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying new things or other things, et cetera, and new models. And I think there's a lot of conversation nowadays about, you know, different types of models and all that's great. But what we can't say is like, let's just keep the status quo and pour more money in it because that's not the solution. Because again, I think we, to the point about history that we were talking about earlier, we have to acknowledge that this, the, the, the system was built with racism, right? Like it, it was built schools. You, you, you had black kids who had to go to very specific schools and white kids go like, you know, we are to think that just in a, a decade or two, we can untangle America's history and public education system is and that we can just put more money into it and everything's going to be fine. That's not that's not the answer. So my hope is that we get transformative and that we get and that we align our values on what this should look like. Uh, and we have a debate on like, I know a lot of debate in, in the 
charter and union community is like some charters uh, should be unionized, should we not, et cetera. I know that's like a lot of debate. And I think sometimes uh, I'm all about workers' rights. Um, and I'm also about schools being able to do what's best for them. And there's a way to meet in the middle to figure out how to like do those types of things. And so my take is like, let's have the, we can debate the nuance of the policy, but let's rely on the values because they should be, they should, we should be able to do that. Uh, if we can't say that every kid should have access to high quality public school, then what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? And that's not just like me in this work. I'm talking about, again, like people who, like mayors, people who represent the communities, uh, congressional members, uh, state house, state senate, whatever. That should be one of our main focuses because we all know that that system can help make transformational change. So, yeah, I could go on and on and on. Uh, but I, I do think that it's time for something different. The debate is so much broader than charter schools, right? It's a good example is neighborhood school boundaries, something you talked about before. And that form of school choice is more controversial than anything else. And I would say on both sides of the aisle, right? Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I have, I have some issues with some of her reporting, and she certainly has some inaccurate things to say about charter schools. But one of the best things she ever did was that This American Life episode, I think it was Missouri, actually, where it was a school district, it was a two-parter, I think called The Problem We Live With, that was about a suburban school district. Yeah, Normandy, right? And so it was like a, a district, and you correct me if I'm wrong, next door to Normandy was getting horrific results. A state law triggered the ability of kids from one district, which happened to be more students of color, to go over to another school district next door, and the parents went ape shit, And like that, and liberals were passing this thing around like, oh my God, this is horrendous. I can't believe these, you know, rednecks or whatever. And then- Year, a couple years later, same thing's happening on the Upper uh, West Side. The same thing's happening in Lachlan Elementary and East Nashville with liberal parents. And so it's almost like a bipartisan consensus among the privileged that we should be using these gating mechanisms to keep the privilege. And that has nothing to do with charter schools, right? It has to do with just how we decide which kid goes to what school or the other. And this is what I think the answer, where the answer could lie for messaging for Democrats and in a way to make it palatable to Democrats. It certainly is more politically explosive and dangerous, but I would love to see people just get up and say, like, and I know this can be platitudinal at times, but your zip code shouldn't determine the quality of your school, period. And we need to do everything possible to untangle the, the value of your property with the quality of your school. And that could mean charter schools. That could mean ESAs if you're so inclined, which is rare to find a Democrat who's going to say that. But it could also mean just having a very permissive system for kids to go to whatever school in the city they want to go to. Or it could mean even trigger laws like the one that Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote about that allows a kid to cross a school district line. You know, that would be a risky thing to say, for sure. It's why a lot of Democrats aren't good on housing issues generally, because they don't want to piss off the affluent who benefit from some of these zoning laws. But I don't know. What what, what do you think would happen if candidates started talking like that? I think they'd be well-received, right? And I agree. I hear you on like, sometimes it's like, oh, if I say this, I don't want to piss off the, the certain part of the base, et cetera. But when we, when we you know, we've had a whole bunch of conversations in the last couple months with family and friends on, on progressive. And what you just said to me is progressive. The white liberals, the most powerful part of the base. Right? That should not be, right? When I grew up in um, St. Louis in the 90s, uh, in the 80s and 90s, St. Louis had busing, right? And so there was kids who were in the city of St. Louis whose traditional public school system was, or public school was not great. And they would get bused 
uh, into the county. And one that fit like what you just said, which is like the zip code shouldn't define that. I agree. Like it's not when you say that zip code, um, there's so much more work we should be thinking about from a place based way and from a zip code way. Um, uh, and two is the opportunities that were received when they were able to go to a high quality public school system, I'm sure changed their lives. Right. Should that just happen in their community? One thousand percent. Like. And we should be pushing for that and we should figure out how that can happen. Again, I'm not, I'm, I'm very pro neighborhood school. I'm also pro reality is that uh, we don't have, uh, there are many neighborhood schools right. that are, are failing communities, right? And so there should be better ones. And so I, I completely agree with you. The zip code should not uh, uh, dictate that. Um, I don't think that would piss people off because even that, uh, the base of the party or the, the wing of the party, who I know folks could be weird at, on paper, they will say the same thing, right? Um, uh, because right. That's, that, that sounds like... It's, it, when, it, when it's time for the doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think Buffy's a good example. Buffy Wicks, who's a, a member of the California legislature, who is an exception on some of this stuff. And I think she's somebody I think about a lot when I think about who can we win over, right? Because Buffy hasn't been great on charter issues, point blank. She started good and then the politics got a hold of her. But one thing she's really good on is housing. And so I'm like, all right, well, that's a start, right? And I'm like, all right. And good is, and I, and to be fair to Buffy, it's good at, according to what I believe and probably what you believe, but she would probably have a different opinion. But she took a real big stand on housing reform. And to me, that is education reform. Right, like so she's saying, let's build more density. To me, that is not the perfect education solution, but certainly is a powerful one. If we're building more density, we're building more low-income housing, we're decreasing the costs of housing, we're bringing more people into some of these really expensive Bay Area, uh, you know, communities, so that the people who work in a community could live near that community, then that's a step forward for education, right? And I, and that's where I really excited to see our movement go is to say, let's not abandon charters. Like I'm not saying let's sell out charters. I will continue to give Buffy a hard time every time I see her on some of the votes she took on charters. But I also think we should applaud her and welcome her to the tent on the issues that we all agree on, which is like building that housing density because that's going to help a kid get into good school. It's not the pure, perfect solution to, you know, to, you know, Johnny Ed reform, but it's like, it's to me, it's, it's, it's a broader conversation about what society can look like, you know? Robbie, I, I couldn't agree more. A couple thoughts. Something that's very important to me in this role at City Fund is I think for too often our movement, but frankly, many movements operate in silos. So when you talk about ed reform, ed reform, ed reform, and we talk about we need to open the school and that's going, and all that is great. And I think it's necessary. And if we are not, if we don't have relationships with other organizations, that are doing or or government that are doing work in the intersection of what all this means housing poverty economic development jobs like if, if we're not if we're not thinking about all those things shame on us we're not actually going to like solve what we're trying to solve you can look at some of the best reform efforts that have happened in this country and the, and you see kids making transformational change and there are still communities where Poverty may be high, violence may be high, and like you have the best school ever, but if you can't walk to school or if you come to school hungry, are you going to learn? And we have to do our part to have a relationship with those who are trying to solve those issues also because they all intersect, they all combine together 
and and there's something we can learn from there, right? And 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 to say there's a one size fits all approach or it has to be this way, I think is incorrect. I think every community is going through different things and to understand, to dissect what's really happening and to step back and say, well, this can be a part of the solution. This can be a part of the solution. I totally agree with that. I'm, I'm, I'm pro schools being able to um, meet the needs of kids and, and have the autonomy to do that. I think that is uh, 100% part of the solution. And we have to also understand like what that means in St. Louis may be very different than what that means in Kansas City and figure out what other relationships and tools in the community that we need to have there. So couldn't agree more with you on like housing is education reform. If you're able to have places to live, if you're able to go home and sleep, go home and study, whatever, um, you're going to be able to have a better, edu- better educational experience. And to divorce any of those things from our work means we're only going to be able to go so far. I think back on my experience at Arena, which continues, obviously, I'm still involved, but I think when I was running Arena, the thing I learned the most during that period of time, the post-2016 period of time, was that what it means to be a Democrat and, and do you know urban education reform, you have to be able to speak democratic politics for sure, is to be a part of a coalition and it's to not expect a bespoke experience, right? You can't step into a debate and be like, I need everybody to be exactly the way I want them to be. Because we're a huge coalition. In the post-Trump environment, we were already a coalition and Obama's really good at speaking to people with a generosity of spirit. But we are as big of a coalition as we've ever been. We've got Bill Kristol and AOC and Eric Adams and Mike Johnston and Rashida Tlaib. You know, like the, the diversity of opinions is enormous here. And I think we need to both fight fiercely for what we believe in, but also understand that on the many issues, we're going to work together with people. And we don't, we're, no one person is powerful, including the very president of the United States. No one person is so powerful that they can walk away from the table. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how I think ed reform in cities should be. Now, they're obviously non-democratic ed reformers. Like the non-democratic ed reformers, you don't need to listen to any of this kind of stuff, but you have your own coalition politics to worry about. But I think if you're, if you're a democratic ed reformer, which I, even though I have eclectic views, I still consider myself that, then you have to have a pretty thick skin for people who disagree with you because you're going to need to be a part of that coalition. That's why our messaging should start from a values-based place. It, it should, we should all be values aligned that uh, choice for parents is a value that we all care about. Um, tell me if that's not a value we care about. So I would actually want to have a discussion on why it was so right. I actually had, uh, again, I'll, I'll leave out the right. city, but I had a great conversation with a school board member who I almost disagree wholeheartedly with, a, wholeheartedly with on policy uh, the other day. But we started from a place of like, okay, I, let me tell you the value of everybody who I've met who've started a charter school, particularly all these um, uh, folks of color, entrepreneurs of color who wanted to go back to their communities who, uh, to make change. Let me tell you why they did that, right? Um, and we were able to not have this like fluff conversation about privatization and all the stuff that comes out even within our own tent because you're trying to like one up or have a messaging, whatever. We just said like, okay, I get the values piece. And then we talked to the policy level and we were like, well, I disagree with that. Well, I, I agree with that. I disagree. And that's fine. And I think we should, the more we do that, the more we just say, like, here are our values. And yes, when we talk about the policy, we're going to have some nuances. We're, but let's just all get to the table because uh, actually all those nuances may help us get uh, uh, better collective outcomes that we want if we all can sit there. But, like, let's get off Twitter or threads or whatever the hell we have all day now and stop, you know, pushing back on my policy ideas if we our values align. And... 
I don't want to hear that if I support charter schools, I'm not values aligned because you don't know the reason I support <laughs> that. Uh, I, I, and I, again, I've, I've seen what America's public school system has looked like. And I think charter schools is the tool in our toolbox. Um, and ask me why before you just make a decision on like where my values stand. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a good place for us to kind of make some closing thoughts here. I, I think, you know, you remind me of at, um, I was at the Howard Fuller recognition ceremony. And for people who are listening, Howard Fuller is a longtime civil rights leader who's been very forceful on educational choice issues, among other things. He was featured in Waiting for Superman. He's been around the block. He's not a young man, although he's got a lot of energy. And I was sitting there watching his speech thinking to myself, you know, here's a guy who talks about how much he loves children, right? And I think we kind of miss that sometimes. Like, I, and I think like that's why school leaders, you mentioned school leaders, right? I think one thing that I'm, I'm left thinking about is this whole world around schools has gotten so big because of the stakes involved and all the support that we provide. Me and you are good examples of that. Like you and I are helping out, right? We're helping out schools. We're trying to help make people, but like, one thing I'm, I've been thinking about a lot of and, and why we feature so many school leaders, like we have a whole podcast with school leaders, is like there's nobody better than teachers and school leaders talking about how much they love children, right? Like they just, they love to talk about how much they love children and it's it's not platitudes, it's here's this kid's name, here's why I love them. And I think the more we empower those people to get out in front of some of these, these messengers, it's really hard to argue with people because even the people, you could go to Nashville today and you could line up hundreds of people who have horrible things to say about me, but not one of them would say, I hate children. <laughs> they would say I'm uncompromising, we worked their teachers too hard, that you know we grew too fast or I, you know I, whatever, I was young and stupid, whatever they wanna say. But they would, there's, you can't find a person in that city that says I don't love children. And that's why it was hard to stop us because that love was so core to our DNA. And I think of somebody like Eva Mosquitz, for example, who's like a true lunatic in the best sense of the word, based on what I could see from her. But she's a lunatic for kids, right? Like, she's like what Steve Jobs was for this phone I'm sitting here. It's like the, her insanity is fueling really good things for kids. And, you know, they're never going to be perfect, these people. But I do think like they're such good messengers that I've, been, I've just been thinking about a lot. Like, how do we get these people out there more? Because there's, they can do such good, you know? Part of uh, why I appreciate you, Robbie, and what you're doing with this podcast, and I think this is this is starting to get our message out. I think we also have to double down and make sure that message is getting out, both through podcasts like these, um, through cable news networks. Um, I do think you mentioned earlier the politics of education and will that be an issue in this in this year's in this next presidential election? Um, I think the answer is yes. I don't think it will be the top issue, but I think. Me and you both know when we did campaigns a long time ago, nobody was nobody was talking about that, right? That's not what wasn't even in the in the in the lexicon. So, like the fact that it's um, a conversation topic, I think is is huge. We have to be able to play the game, and playing the game means we got to get our message out. We got to understand the politics of it all, and like how do we get those same messengers in the room with um, uh, elected officials so they know what's actually happening in their communities. Uh, a lot of times what I found, and again, I'm new to this world, like you said, I have my opinions from a long time ago, but coming into it in this place, I would say one of the critiques I have is, uh, and this is, this is, I think, 
a good thing, I guess, overall is like a lot of times it just kept the kept their head, folks like you kept your head down and did the work. Well, yeah, right? I was because bad at like, that. We have changed to do. I, I was gonna. I was bad at keeping my <laughs> head down. Uh, we got in a lot of political fights, but yeah, I'm with you yeah, on that critique. Fair, though fair. that was my critique of my my yeah, colleagues, that's which is that they were they were afraid of the political fights, and I don't blame them because they're not like you and me. They don't know even what they don't know when it comes to the political fights. They, right. they did think I, that right. the head in the sand approach would work. And for some of them, it does. Because like any collective action problem, like some people do benefit from being silent, but the overall movement struggles. Totally. And if you don't have those fights, you are hurting your own very existence. So it's, it is not about having a fight because you're like, I don't want to do with politics. It's about, no, lifting up the, the folks you serve and showing it to those who represent you is one helping you sustain and exist, but two changing the narrative on what this work is, right? Yeah. So I totally agree with you. We have to. We have the Howard Fools of the world. We have so many um, folks, and like, if, if at the end of the day, like, you could disagree with you, you could disagree with uh, Eva Moskowitz, then don't choose your school, right? But like you said, at the right. end of the day, if people know your values are. I give a damn about kids and I'm going to do everything possible, then, man, don't we want all schools to be like that? And maybe how you approach that school, or uh, it could be slightly different and how Robbie's school is, is going to be different than how Eva's school is, different than how Tony's school is. That's fine. But man, you want the collective to be, I give a shit about kids. Ooh, I cussed right. I'm sorry. Um, no, that's fine. So no, I, it's fine. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's the thing is like, I do think we have to cut through the jargon. And I actually think the jargon is less of an issue for the people close to the schools. But I do think the Democratic Party loves this kind of stuff, which is they, they love to talk about schools in terms of platitudes and high level things because it allows. And, and, I, and I, I truly mean this. It allows us to de, it, it desensitizes us to the, what we're talking about. If we actually talked about real human beings and we, set, and we made the trade-offs that we make sometimes as Democrats in big cities in particular, then we would not make those choices if we were forced to talk about it specifically. And I think there's, there's a power in the detail, you know? Let's be honest. Being in the, uh, politics as long as we have, first of all, I think Obama was great with lifting everything up from a value-based level, right? And so, if you look at one of the times our movement was the strongest, uh, it was during those years when it was all about the kids, all about outcomes, all about making sure that we are educating the next generation of our society. And education is not the only issue sometimes where we get caught up in our own jargon and fail to deliver a values-based message to America. So, I, I'm hoping that through a lot of the work that many of us are doing, that we can push our party on. Again, let's start with what we do agree with uh, at a values-based level, because if we do that, I think it can really cut through and, and transform this work. And if we have some policy differences, let's hash that out. But that, that, that's actually, the policy be better if we hash out those policy differences. Like, but, but don't say that my, my point of view does not tie to my caring about kids, particularly kids that look like me, like, don't say that, right? And if we can just start with what we do agree with, I think I think we can move the conversation forward a lot. I think we have a huge opportunity over these next 18 months because nothing better like a presidential election to, to see how coalitions unite. For sure. Well, Marlon, thank you so much for joining us. Big fan of you, big fan of City Fund. Shout out to Kristen, um, one of the best people out there in the work, works over on your team. 
you know, just one of those people who just hustles, hustles out there, both for 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 kids, but also in our fitness group. Uh, she's an all-star <laughs> member of my little yes, fitness posse, so yes, she's she she's out there doing the Murph. Uh, all right, well, Marlon, thank you so much, man. Appreciate you, man. Good to good to catch up and good to talk about the work. And uh, I'll catch up with you on the other side and we'll talk about some other stuff as well too. But I appreciate the opportunity, brother. Mm-hmm.